Good afternoon from Singapore and welcome to the Gulf Intelligence Daily Markets webinar. I am Vandana Hari, founder of Vanda Insights and today's guest host. After uh, gaining ground over the past fortnight, um, for the first uh, one on the surprise OPEC floods, uh, and then on some cheer in the financial markets over a, a sharp deceleration in US consumer inflation that we saw last week, uh, crude futures have subsequently gone into a holding pattern so far this week. As we speak, Brent is trading around uh, 84.36 uh, per barrel, um, definitely below the highs that we saw um, in the days after the announcement of the surprise uh, OPEC plus cuts. Um, meanwhile, we've had a flurry of uh, macroeconomic and oil data from China, uh, of course, including the Q1 uh, GDP data uh, that came out yesterday. We've had March crude imports, uh, crude throughput in China, product export figures uh, this week. Most of the numbers have been encouraging, uh, showing strong year-on-year -year growth. Um, though, of course, there is a base effect that uh, has to be borne in mind there as well. <clears throat> On balance, um, the data, the Chinese data hasn't really nudged the oil market out of the, the wait and watch mode <clears throat> as far as the country is concerned. My feeling is that some of the upbeat March numbers, especially the 15% jump in goods exports from China, 11% um, surge in retail sales, and a 22% year-on-year rise in crude imports um, have been diluted by a few concerns. Uh, now, one of them, of course, is that the recovery is uneven uh, across the Chinese economy. And the other is the question as to how much of the March bump is due to revenge spending, um, or let's say the fulfillment of a previous backlog of orders by, by manufacturers, and, uh, you know, will that bump flatten uh, in the coming months? So uh, all in, um, the oil complex remains fixated on the economic outlook and uh, tracking the mood in the broader financial markets. So what comes next? Uh, to, to dive deeper into the markets, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, my guests today. Um, Robin Mills, uh, CEO of Kamar Energy. Uh, Mike McGlone, a Senior Macro Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence and Alex Hazel, Senior Analyst at Valigence Energy Analytics. So, um, Mike, I'd like to start with you. Um, uh, as I mentioned, uh, from what I can see, the uh, it's pretty much the uh, financial, the mood in the financial markets, uh, and within that, of course, uh, ongoing speculation over what the Fed is going to do uh, that is back in the driver's seat for the for the oil complex. Now, um, the Fed meets on uh, May 2 and 3, and it seems to me that another 25 basis points hike seems to be a, a foregone conclusion at this point. Um, and the majority of bets from what I can see after that are for a pause uh, and then cuts, rate cuts through the second half uh, of the year. Uh, Fed funds futures are indicating nearly 85% uh, of bets that rates will be anywhere between 25 to 75 basis points lower uh, by the end of this year. 
but as with previous Fed pivot uh, bets, uh, there seem to be some doubts creeping. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, we have an item in today's digest saying that um, this is a, a report from The Hill saying that seven in 10 adults in the US have a negative view of the economy. So um, could you unpack uh, this sort of data and the current market mood for us, Mike, uh, in, in, with regards to the US economy? Oh, that was quite the, the background. I think that was um, quite good. It painted the picture very well. The fact is the Fed is still tightening despite commodities, housing, um, a lot of indications. You mentioned PPI plunging. So let's talk about plunging. Right now, the, the producer price index in this country is dropping at the highest velocity ever since 1948. It's dropped 15% from the peak. The, the, uh, the, most, since the similar comparison was uh, the great financial crisis. It dropped about the same, but it did in the year. It's only been nine months. So what you described to me, what we're describing is the Fed tightening with um, with things peaking, uh, inflation deflating rapidly is a severe economic contraction scenario. So things like um, potential demand from China, to me, it's all factored into the market, it's consensus. You can see that in the forward curve and futures of uh, Brent and WTI, still in backwardation, lower prices. So I see what the market right now on a cliff's edge likely to fall down, but everything, all correlations going to one. And you're seeing that this morning. I think this morning is a good indication of what we should expect most of the rest of the year, equities are down, cryptos are down, crude oil's down, copper's down, even gold's down. And to me, gold is one of the few commodities that can still um, perform well. The key thing is we're heading towards a significant recession and the Federal Reserve is still tightening. So to me, this is one of the greatest mistakes in history kicking in and you're seeing it in real time. So here's one good example I'll give you. Crude oil right now, WTI is down 21% on a one-year basis. The the Bloomberg Commodity Index is down about 22% on a one-year basis. In our data since 1960, the Fed has never tightened in that environment. That's a deflationary forward-looking indication. They're still focusing on lagging measures of inflation that are very much sticky. And I think they're just going to collapse and follow PPI. So that's a key point to point out is that the, the beta of PPI to CPI is about two, two, 2x, two times. And PPI is dropping at the greatest pace in history, and the Fed's still tightening. That's bearish for all commodities, particularly crude oil. Okay, you you mentioned gold there, and and uh, there was a, a feeling um, until very recently, perhaps there is still amongst the gold bulls that perhaps it's going to beat its previous record highs. Uh, but as you quite rightly just said, it's it seems to be retreating today. Now, gold has been moving inversely to the US dollar and which and and the greenback has been under a fair amount of pressure and i think that's that's an interesting dynamic because uh, if the if we are to believe that the US dollar remains under pressure uh, then that is uh, supportive for crude prices isn't it what what do you have a view on on the dollar going forward i do but it's the smile thing if the US stock market has a problem gold um the dollar usually does okay. I mean, if it's it's more of a financial issue. The key thing is, I like to point out, gold is an enduring bull market. It's had a dip and it's returning back to the bull market. I fully expect it's going to break above two thousand dollars an ounce and, and never look back. It's hovering there right now. It's made new highs in terms of the euro and the yen. It's one of the few commodities I'm bullish. I'm a little bit bullish natural gas only because it's had an eighty percent correction. 
That's what crude oil is doing right now. So to me, gold is one of the few commodities up on a 12-month basis, up about 2% versus Bloomberg Commodity Index down to 20%. My question is, what stops that trajectory? I'm full, very bullish gold. It's backing up a little bit this morning. But um, it, the dollar is going to be somewhat subject to this, this situation with the, the smile. If, if the U.S. stock market drops with high velocity, which it does normally in a recession, which I fully mm -hmm. expect, then gold will do uh, be one of the best performers. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, let's turn our attention a bit to uh, fundamentals with with Robin. Um, Robin, in its latest monthly market outlook report uh, that OPEC released last week, uh, the OPEC analysts um, maintained their projections of uh, 2.3 million barrels per day rise in, in global oil demand this year. Um, which is also, of course, also on the perhaps the most optimistic side of, of some of the uh, projections out there. Uh, they even upgraded Chinese demand growth expectations for this year to about 760,000 barrels per day year on year. Now, given the decision of April 2nd for an additional cut of about 1.2 million barrels per day, and um, what we saw in terms of the OPEC analysts' uh, outlook of the markets, were, were you surprised? Yeah, it's a little bit contradictory. And, you know, you saw Haithan uh, his latest uh, Secretary General, his latest interview, you know, he was uh, kind of at pains to kind uh, of finesse this. Um, you know, I, I, he pointed to the cuts in October and he said, you know, we made the right decision then and, and when others said it wasn't. And yeah, in retrospect, uh, you know, they did make the right call. Um, but that doesn't mean they're right this time, of course. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, of course, that they, they as you say, they, they maintain their forecast for growth and, uh, you know, quite bullish forecasts and, uh, and, and even upgraded China, as you note. And yet, of course, uh, you know, the, there were these, these, these cuts announced, um, you know, uh, was was also pointed out. Well, these were not OPEC cuts; these were voluntary cuts. But they, yeah, but they were, but they were made by virtually every OPEC member and, uh, and the key ones. Very much, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia and the others very much encouraged and and led these cuts. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, perhaps a distinction without a difference. Um, but yeah. there is something of a divergence there. OPEC said we're, we're very cautious on the global outlook for demand and the the, the economic outlook. Um, and that's why we've made cuts. And, and yet, you know, yet we've maintained our, our overall demand forecasts. Yeah, somewhat surprisingly, I guess, uh, they weren't really pointing to any doubts over China uh, as much as they said the U.S. summer driving demand season may not be as um, strong um, as, as it typically is. So, I, you know, I personally, I found that a, a, a bit interesting. Now, I think this, I, I know this is a slightly tough question, Robin, but who better than you to answer it? Um, given that, as you just mentioned, these are voluntary cuts. And of course, on paper, all, everything is voluntary, right? About OPEC plus the, the countries participating to agreeing to uh, all the production adjustments, everything is voluntary. But this one was more voluntary uh, than previous uh, voluntary moves. Uh, the, my question is, um, do you think, uh, you know, given that we haven't even seen, for instance, OPEC publish any uh, revised uh, quotas for the countries, let alone a, a revised ceiling for the whole group, do you see uh, good compliance uh, with, with the latest pledges? Yeah, I mean, the reason for the voluntary cuts is obviously that, that they don't, you know, obviously OPEC works on consensus um, and uh, and these voluntary cuts therefore don't require absolute consensus. And also probably more importantly, reversing them doesn't require consensus. Um, so that's, uh, you know, the, the, when the 
when the demand outlook improves and that they can uh, they can bring back that production without needing maybe any holdout country to agree. Um, however, I, I think the tension within OPEC is kind of more going the other way. If you know, if and when they're required to increase production, um, you know, let's say the more bullish forecasts come about and then we'll definitely see a deficit later in the year and they have to look at increasing production, um, you know, can they do so? Because only a few countries are in a position to do that, as we know. In terms of compliance, yeah, I think we'll see strong compliance and that's really because um, the uh, the key countries, you know, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and, and so on, were very much behind it, and, and will will you know, as usual will will fully comply. Um, Iraq, you know, which was maybe the doubtful one, um, has this issue with the pipeline through Turkey mm -hmm. being cut, so it's kind of suffering a forced a forced cut of about four fifty thousand barrels per day. It's supposed yeah. to cut to eleven, so it's it's well within uh, even if they up up export from the south, they're still well within in the range of yeah. compliance. Um, the tricky the tricky one obviously is Russia, which had already announced its own kind of voluntary cut, voluntary or involuntary, um, but doesn't actually seem to be complying with that yet. Yeah, yeah, quite. I'm, I'm with you on that. I will come back to you, Robin, on uh, on what's happening with the northern Iraq uh, crude exports. But uh, just staying on the theme of uh, fundamentals, um, welcome uh, to the show, Alex. And uh, I'd like to, to talk to you a little bit about um, what's happening in the North Sea. It's, you know, it's one of the few major remaining oil provinces globally that is uh, bucking the general trend of falling investments and declining production. Uh, we've seen investments coming into the region, we've seen production going and, and uh, some uh, projections of, of uh, continued growth. Uh, of course, producers have reaped good profits last year, uh, but it doesn't look like the companies are having it easy. So there are reports that uh, banks are withdrawing financing support as, as the windfall tax that was introduced last year uh, looks like it may not be phased out before March 2028. I think that's that's quite a long time for the windfall tax to be kept in place. Um, we have uh, an item on that in, in today's digest. Uh, so, so Alex, from your perch, what is your take on on the prospects for the region uh, in terms of continuing to grow its uh, to continuing to invite investment, attract investment, and, and grow its production capacity? I, I, th I think what we're seeing very much in uh, in the North Sea is that politically, oil and gas remains very unpopular. It's very popular at the minute uh, for politicians to rack up taxes. Uh, as you mentioned, the EPL, energy profits levy in the UK has certainly acted to dampen demand. And in fact, I think Harbour Energy, one of the largest producers in the in the UK sector, which built its whole business, well, almost all its business in the UK sector, is now looking for alternative markets and is looking to invest and has blasted it because it removed um, ele elements of investment allowance. Uh, one of the big challenges in the UK is finding new projects into which to invest. But the UK is not entirely alone in that. Netherlands, for example, increased its royalty rate uh, quite dramatically for the next couple of years, which is going to take a lot of the additional profit out of the Dutch producers. And they're struggling to grow production in, in amongst the carbon taxes. Uh, the Euro in the North Sea, generally, there's a lot more of a push towards green energy now. Um, mm -hmm. However, what we are starting to see to an extent is some green shoots of recovery. As you say, companies have strong balance sheets. Uh, Norwegian production is staying relatively static around 4 million barrels a day, as it has for the last 20 years. And it looks like it's going to continue that for the next several years. But And we are starting to see some governments take a bit of a step back, maybe from some of their stronger worded messages that they had. Denmark 
is banning all oil and gas production past 2050, for example. And they've said, mm-hmm. we're not really going to do any more license rounds. And this year, they've done a mini license round and they've now licensed a new oil and uh, a new gas, con- uh, gas condensate discovery, Ellie Luke, uh, for their main EMP there, Blue Nord, or their main uh, Danish producer. Uh, small companies such as Beacon Energy and MCF Energy are going into unfamiliar markets. They're entered into Germany and Austria, uh, not exactly known for being uh, oil and gas provinces in themselves. So in terms of the wider European market, there is politically a lot of pressure, I think, to almost punish oil and gas and to reduce investment and to mm. move on into these green energy spaces. However, there are elements of saying there is some practicalities coming in in maybe the short, medium term to get as much out as they can, um, which did not exist prior to uh, to the price crunch last year. Yeah, I, I was reading uh, how um, the Johann Swerdrup crude grade, which uh, some of it, which used to come quite regularly all the way into, into Korea and other parts of Asia, is now uh, actually all flowing into Europe. And, uh, you know, after last year's crisis, I think um, Europe needs nothing more than um, provinces like the North Sea actually continue to grow oil and gas production. But um, this is a dilemma, isn't it? As, as you say, uh, the pressure on the companies and from the governments, from, from stakeholders, and certainly not to forget environmentalists is, is actually to go in the opposite direction. Uh, Mike, um, we, we talked a, a touch a little bit about um, on, on core CPI versus headline inflation um, a, a while ago. Look, when I look at, um, well, as I understand it, the Fed looks at core uh, inflation to make its its decision um, decisions. And uh, the core, uh, the PCE, the personal consumption expenditure, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which I'm told is the Fed's preferred gauge, has actually been quite stubborn. Uh, we have yet to uh, see the March uh, uh, number, but certainly as of February. Now, the way I interpreted it, there appears to be a game of chickens, money managers betting that the Fed will abandon its 2% inflation target um, in the interest of engineering a soft landing for the US economy. Uh, But, you know, again, as we have seen in the past several months, um, the market seems to have this conviction. Um, And then either the Fed officials will, will make some hawkish comments or we'll get, you know, some upheavals like we did last month with the banking crisis. Um, and then the retreat, and, and we see uh, you know risk appetite disappearing fr- from the market, and, and of course that affects uh, crude as well. Uh, what what is your take on this sort of ongoing tussle? Is, is it um, does it get resolved at, at any point? No, oh, it'll get resolved. It's you're discussing the nuances of markets, which can make you lose your hair, and you have very nice hair. I've lost my hair trying to figure it out. I, I see what's happening is um, employment, employment cost index, personal consumption expenditures, all running around five percent, very sticky, but they're all rolling over. And the key, like the beta, the thing that runs them fastest, and from a commodity standpoint, are all indicating they're going to be plunging. And so let's look at right now the, the I like to go focus on PPI because I'm a commodity guy. The PPI finished goods is running 3.2%. It peaked around uh, 19% and mm-hmm. Fed funds are 5%. Fed funds are still heading higher, well above PPI. PPI is going down at the fastest pace in history. So I only go back to 1948. 
that's a train wreck for an economic um, contraction, just about kicking in. The Fed fund futures you mentioned, they're priced for one more tightening and ease later in the year. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're priced for that future, but it's the hopium that it won't be a soft, it will be a soft lane. It's going to be a pretty severe recession. That's just a reciprocal expectation from what we've done in the markets. We had the biggest pump in liquidity in this history that's dumping. So the key thing is going to be what happens with the stock market. And I see all markets, with the exception of gold and long bonds, on cliff's edge. Um, and to me, that's just part of the nuance. But what we see here is the classic case for creating a severe recession. That is hiking when inflation's plunging. It's just some of the measures the Fed looks are look at are very sticky and they're very much lagging. They're measures, but markets like commodities are showing severe deflation. Just look at the forward curve in Brent and WTI. It's much lower. Um, why? Because it expects prices to be lower, supply to come back. And do you expect this deflation to remain on track, um, even if oil prices uh, are, you know, remain, or let's say, remain at current levels or, or go higher? Because I think we can't lose sight of the fact that that March inflation numbers may have come out more benign uh, because March uh, crude prices were much lower than than Jan and Feb. So um, the price of crude oil you see on the screen right now was first traded in two thousand and seven. Um, price you see on natural gas first trading in 1990. Those are significant deflating markets. They're not keeping up with GDP, money supply, or anything. And if we expect those to go higher, because the little nuances about supply and demand, I say good luck with that. The macro is very bearish. And I fully expect crude oil to continue dro dropping from last year's peak, which was below the peak from 2008. So um, yes, what you need is a pretty significant jump in prices like crude oil for inflation not to continue lower. And I fully expect the current trajectory, which is lower crude oil prices, lower natural gas, lower all commodities with the exception of gold to continue, particularly with the Federal Reserve tightening. And most of the markets already priced in the fact that we've had opening in China. So to me, it's the, the current directory has to shift. And for that to shift, you need a major shift in supply and demand. And as we point out earlier, why is the price down 21% on an annual basis? Because the, everything's heading towards recession, particularly in the U.S. And you mentioned earlier, I, I like to talk about peak driving. One of my key signals that got me bearish last year was when U.S. unleaded gas demand peaked during the peak driving season. It's still heading lower. You look at U.S. natural gas demand, it's dropped to the lowest in six years. That's an annual measure. Look at diesel demand, it's all heading downward and the Fed's still tightening, the economy's rolling over. That's the key yeah. fact. The number one to 10 on a 10 basis for everything is the Fed is still tightening. Right. I hear you loud and clear, Mike. So a uh, continuing deflationary cycle, that's definitely going to sound uh, good for our, our listeners in the major consuming countries, especially in, in this part of the world where I am. Um, Robin, let's go back to, um, and as, as um, Mike was saying, uh, prices headed lower is, is what he sees. And one of the major outages over the past few weeks that that still that did not bump up prices was, of course, the nearly half a million barrels per day of uh, northern Iraqi crude exports from Chehan that still remain suspended. Now, um, what we've seen over the past, of course, there, there have been developments on this. It's not a complete impasse. So what we have seen is uh, Baghdad and Erbil, uh, the Kurdish regional government, uh, strike an agreement, which uh, looks like they're going to re quite dramatically rearrange the pricing and, and marketing of, of Kirko crude um, and how the loans of, uh, are paid back by, by KRG to, to the oil companies. 
but now it seems that uh, Turkey wants to renegotiate with Baghdad the, com the compensation it has been ordered to pay. Um, is that what you uh, see is, is holding up the resumption of um, exports? And, and do you think we should be prepared for um, a, a longer drawn out uh, battle over here? Yeah, so absolutely, you know, Turkey's taken advantage of this, that they shut down the pipeline because they didn't want to incur further liability. You know, having done that, they've, they've realised that uh, this gives them actually some leverage uh, and, uh, and indeed they don't need to restart until they can, they can resolve the issue of the compensation. So, you know, they're ordered to pay compensation for the, uh, the period 2014 to 18, um, but there was a, a further case that was going between 2019 to, um, to 23. Um, and um, so the Turks were basically would have been liable for a larger payment for that period. And, uh, you know, I've seen that, that uh, as long as the pipeline shut down, they have some, some leverage to, to get that reduced or drop the case. Um, yeah, I, I see this as being, as being more drawn out and the Iraqis have got themselves in, in, in a bad situation here. They, they thought they'd won the case. Actually, they didn't win that much money. They didn't win nearly as much as they wanted. And now they're they're seeing that Turkey is um, is is playing its game with leverage. And there was a Turkish deal on the table before this um, to, to 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 settle this out of court. But the uh, the Iraqis couldn't couldn't come up with a united position. Um, Turkey's coming to elections, of course, really critical elections. President Erdogan under a lot of pressure, um, and so I don't expect a resolution until after the elections. He's got other things on his mind. You know, even if he even if he wins, you know, he won't be able to turn attention to this until uh, until the election period is over. And if there's a new president, of course, they may take a, a completely different line on on, uh, on this dispute. And anyway, they'll they'll take some time to get settled in office. Oh dear, this is really bad news for uh, the Kurds, then, isn't it? Well, you know. It, it, it is, and this, this is kind of a complex situation because you know the, the temporary deal that was reached um, provides for the oil marketing out of Jehan, as you say, for, for Baghdad to take that over. Um, but giving the advantage then that they actually realise a higher price, and uh, and they would pay a part of the um, the uh, part of the Kurdish budget. So uh, you know, will they be prepared to pay the Kurdish budget when when exports have been have been cut off? Um, and there's no, there isn't any kind of revenues there to pay the budget from. Um, we have to come out of south, southern revenues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks for that, Robin. Uh, Alex, something else uh, that could have potentially impacted uh, supply, but but hasn't. I think mercifully is uh, these rolling strikes by by oil and gas services companies um, in the North Sea. But uh, you know, given that. Uh, a lot of these are uh, also affecting, um, I, I presume, are affecting maintenance, just routine maintenance at, at uh, oil and gas fields of the North Sea. And I was wondering, maybe, you know, in the short term, the oil market is not paying attention to this because supply has not been affected. Uh, but it's not so long back that we can, uh, you know, remember um, lots of infrastructure, North Sea infrastructure related accidents, which would uh, result in, you know, unforeseen major outages in, in oil and, and gas supply from the region. Uh, do you see the, the, the current um, strife in, in the workers, uh, the, the unions? Um, resulting in, in any sort of law, should we have any longer term um, concerns uh, over this and in, in what, what's happening in that sector? I, I would, we, we've seen some strikes and I guess being based in London, we've seen a number of strikes outside of all workers as well. Um, but the, uh, practically speaking, I don't think there's going to be too much impact on supply. Um, 
as what's ha- what's happening and we're not really seeing it so much in the uk uk is kind of declining a bit in terms of uh, in terms of its production anyway um i think there's more focus maybe on on job jobs there um norway tends to handle it on um on a wider basis on a sector-wide basis and from what from what we've seen there's minor outages but um generally speaking uh, supplies ended up being um being one of the things that they focus on keeping running and so i i wouldn't expect too much of a decline i think a lot of the outages that may have happened in the past the the north seas tended to try and push into being i guess the gold standard for safety and um in new processes norway in particular has very strict uh, rules and processes um, that they put in place um, i don't think um, I, i can't see supply outages really occurring in any significant quantity from the north sea um, to be honest okay well um, that that's definitely a, a source of relief as, as well um, shall we have the we have about two minutes left let's have the survey question uh, today's survey question relates to uh, some of the uh, comments i made earlier about china uh, and here it is uh, what do we see as the biggest threat uh, to central banks' efforts to rein in inflation? Uh, is it rising energy costs, uh, growing US-China trade tensions, or Chinese demand rebound? So uh, go ahead and have your say. Okay. So. Um, I'll just come back to uh, Mike for um, short answers. Um, you said um, you have, you're expecting, def- def- it's definitely a, a deflationary cycle now. You're expecting a lot of uh, downward pressure on uh, commodities, including oil. Um, what is your uh, projection for where we end this year in, in terms of oil prices? So I'm not, I don't, we're not really allowed to put projections on price, but I think WTI is going to uh, reach towards $40 a barrel, which is about the average U.S. cost of production. I think it's going to follow U.S. natural gas, which has dropped to its average cost around $2. It's bounced from that level, as it should. And I think all commodities are doing it. I think corn's going to do the same. Uh, markets are still very much elevated as the U.S. heads towards our, our normal recession. That's the facts. If we avoid this recession, good luck. The way to avoid a recession is a long and variable lag from an aggressive Fed easing period or still tightening. Thank you. Um, and here's the survey results. Uh, more, it, well, it's quite split, but rising energy costs are seen as the main danger uh, to uh, to efforts by central banks to, to rein in uh, inflation. Uh, Robin, uh, again, just a, a short one. Uh, I was uh, looking at a... Bloomberg analyst uh, saying that uh, they expect the Saudis to defend an $80 per barrel uh, price floor. Do you agree? Look, these price floors are very elastic. And, you know, when prices stick at 90 for a while, then people get the idea that 90 is a nice floor. And the same with 100. So, um, you know, if, if prices dip below 80, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll do further cuts. If we get in a real recessionary scenario, then the 80 floor is, is uh, you know, is not, is not defensible. And uh, you know they'll they'll find some lower floors to try to defend. Um, however, you know I think the 
you know, recession is a big question, but if we, if we avoid a recession or a shallow recession, I think the, uh, uh, you know, the, the fundamentals and uh, definitely point towards a tighter market at the end, uh, towards the end of this year. And, um, uh, you know, some of those epic cuts will have to be reversed. Okay, thank you. Um, Alex, is there anything that, uh, from your perspective, again, the world is missing in terms of uh, major risks? Uh, and, you know, let's look at a slightly longer time horizon here, uh, not the typical one year or few months that we tend to talk about in um, um, quite often, very short-term outlook. But uh, in terms of, and, and you, you did uh, allude to that in terms of uh, declining investment, but um, what is it that concerns you the most, shall we say, when you, when you look at uh, the general upstream sector in your part of the world? Uh, fr frankly, it's a lack, lack of investment and concentration uh, into certain players to deliver more and more of the crude market. Um, looking looking at what's going on in Europe, carbon taxes, large push towards green energy, it's going to lead to a lot of demand shifting over to potential to renewables, um, moving away from oil and gas into probably, there's a lot of bets going on with hydrogen at the minute, um, mm -hmm. offshore wind in particular. So I, I guess one of the big risks that we're tending to see is if companies don't invest in the North Sea, there's going to be this period in the energy transition where oil and gas uh, companies aren't getting funded for big new provinces potentially um, to continue expanding. We've seen exploration, big success in Namibia um, last year with Venus, uh, multi-billion barrels. Are we going to continue to see those new provinces, uh, Guyana historically, are we going to continue to see new provinces being found and giving a security supply by a series of diverse sources? Or are we going to see projects get cancelled, production get dropped, and then we're, the market becomes heavily reliant on an OPEC plus environment into which case, um, you know, from a supply point of view, if you have very concentrated market players, they can start dictating pricing a lot more effectively. And yeah. so is that good for uh, consuming nations such as potentially, uh, such as those in Europe or indeed in Asia, Asia Pac. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, even uh, within OPEC Plus, and I'm sure as, as Robin would attest, there's not a whole lot of investment happening in, in growing upstream capacity. So uh, thank you very much for those comments. I couldn't agree with you uh, more, Alex. And on that very sobering note, um, please join me in thanking uh, Robin Mills, uh, Mike McGlone, and Alex Hazel. And thank you very much um, for all those who tuned in for this webinar. Bye-bye.